All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Got your Money Wise guys back inside the Money Wise studio with me for this weekend show. I have my brother Jeff, Joe Rust, and I am your host, Kyle Davidson. For any new listeners to the Money Wise program, Davidson Capital Management is a fee-only registered investment advisor with our 35th year of business and with offices in San Antonio and Corpus Christi. We have your investment management needs covered throughout Central and South Texas. And if you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Tuesday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from the Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the MoneyWise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. As we kick off every weekend's Money Wise program, I turn it over to my brother Jeff to go into the numbers from Wall Street from this past week. So, Jeff, take it away. Okay, in the last week just passed, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was down about 44 points or one-tenth of 1%. The S&P 500 last week was down about 21 points or four-tenths of 1%. And the NASDAQ last week was down about 215 points or 1.3%. Now, for the year to date, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is up 2.5%. The S&P 500 year-to-date is up 4.9%. And the NASDAQ year-to-date is up 5.1%. Thank you, Jeff. You're welcome. So, um, you know, I guess on Friday, spent most of the day in a very tight range and then just kind of lost a little bit of steam at the very end of the day. Now, I know this past week we had a lot of da- lot of data that came out, particularly consumer price index and producer price index, uh, which I think was some of the main news headlines driving the markets. I don't know if you gentlemen wanted to jump into it right off the bat or if there's yeah. something else you wanted to discuss first. No, no, that was – I mean, that that's what was driving the whole thing this week. We talked about it last week that the, all the attention was going to be – Put on what was happening with with the consumer price index and the producer price index to a lesser extent, and the the hotter than expected consumer price numbers, which were I think only one tenth of a percent hotter than what was expected, was good for a minus six hundred point day on the Dow. Uh, It's been almost a year. Was it Tuesday? I thought it was Wednesday. Pardon me. Uh, it, It was the worst day in almost a year for the Dow Jones Industrial Average. So to say that there was a little bit of disappointment investors uh, on that particular day, there was. Now the market made some whatever recovery in the days following. Uh, the producer price number on Friday uh, seemed a little worse 
then the consumer price. I think the expectations that the the, the the with the producer price number came out much higher than expectations than the consumer price did versus those expectations. The markets didn't seem to react as negatively, though we did have a negative day, and we had a negative week, which I think is the first negative week in four or five. I, th- I think for the for the markets, it's, it's been uh, a while. But, but you know, a one tenth of a percent down for the week for the Dow. Given those hot inflation numbers, and only four tenths for the uh, down for the week uh, of a percent for the S and P, I wouldn't exactly call it a, a dastardly bad week by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, the the Fed speak uh, that I heard was seemed to be resounding uh, in agreement that hey markets, there's no interest rate cuts anytime soon. So that narrative, to me, is dead. There, there is no, you know, despite, and I, I, I think, I think my father, I think Dad wanted to take me to task when I saw him a few a few days ago, saying that he didn't. I can't remember if he said he didn't say that they were going to raise in March or or what exactly <laughs> it was. But I, when I, when, he, when I heard him say that, it's like, uh, yeah, I don't think they're going to be. Uh, Pardon me, cutting in March. I don't think they're going to be cutting in March, but and and Dad was convinced. I I, I believe he thought that they were. I don't know if he still feels the same way. Yes, Kyle. Well, hold on, Joe. Joe, one of just okay. Joe. Well, no, I mean, here's a new Bond guy that we kind of all follow on Gunlock. 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 Well, he Gerlock. was saying maybe in Gerlock. June. Am I wrong? Or he said maybe we may have a June. Uh, I, what I was saying. saying? What, what have we been saying? We've been saying late spring, early summer at the earliest. Now, when Dad was on the show, which we had technical difficulties, so the show never made the air, Dad was predicting that the rate cuts were most likely going to be the first one coming in March because his thought process was is that they're not going to cut closer to the election because that could be viewed favorably for the Democrats, and since the Fed is supposed to be bipartisan, in order to not have a look of impropriety, they needed to cut sooner rather than later. Uh, but that, I mean, cutting in late summer, I mean, late spring, early summer, I mean, the election's not until November. They could also cut at a higher rate as opposed to just doing a quarter of 1%. They could do half. But I know that Jay Powell, chairman of the Federal Reserve, the big fear that looms over him is he doesn't want to have to deal with what they dealt with in the early 80s where they cut interest rates too soon, inflation came back, and it took – you know, a bunch more of interest rate increases after they started decreasing to finally end the monetary inflation issue. But it also included a pretty good sized recession, which is what the Federal Reserve and what we all want to avoid. And I think everybody can agree that the odds of having a recession, I mean, the, the percentage chance of that happening is going uh, is, is a lot less than it was at the beginning of the year, and even even going in the fourth quarter of last year. I think that's. A, I think everybody's in agreement on that. I mean, I would agree with you, Joe. I know that when when I had conversations with clients second half of last year, you know, part of the conversation just to prepare our clients emotionally and psychologically that you know there is a high probability that we'll see a recession in 2024, although it will be very shallow in nature. Um, markets will have, of course, a reaction to it, but I don't think as negatively as they would in recessions past because we still have such a strong job picture. There's still a lot of cash on the sidelines. It's still some savings out there 
from the COVID pandemic relief and, and of course, higher wages. But monetary inflation, for all intents and purposes, is moving down. And I know I don't have time to talk about it in this segment, but I do want to talk about an article that I read this past week from MarketWatch concerning how the consumer price index is calculated and what percentage of this calculation is being created using extremely old data. And when I mean old data, over a year old of, of data that the Fed is using to calculate this, and when you use more recent data, it shows that the consumer price index is far less, in fact, has actually already met the Fed's target mandate. And, of course, the writer of the article is saying that the Fed needs to start cut, cutting rates now before we do slip into a recession in this higher interest rate environment we currently find ourselves in. Well, with that, let's take our first commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. You Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. If you'd like to give us a call in our office on Tuesday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Money Wise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So if you're just tuning in this weekend's Money Wise program, continuing to recap the happenings of Wall Street from this past week. Before we went to break, we were talking about the consumer price index and the producer price index. Both came in this past week hotter than expected. Uh, the market, again, being down for the week's first down week in quite a few number of weeks. But we would say that all in all, from the hotter CPI and PPI numbers, the response, I would say, was a little bit more muted. Uh, it was a little it had a little bit uh, more of a governor on it, so to speak, with the S and P being down four tenths of a percent. But I alluded to an article that I read this past week from Market Watch, and so during the commercial break, pulled up the article. And the title the title of the article is "We Need to Snap Out of It." The Fed is being misled again by inflation numbers, says professor behind Popular Recession Predictor. And so kind of going back in the Wayback Machine of some of the articles that we would read and talk about on the Money Wise Show, and as we have done for the last 19 years, I just want to read some excerpts out of this article. The U.S. Federal Reserve is being mid- misled by inflation data and is potentially making a big mistake. A professor who developed a widely used recession indicator told MarketWatch, Harvey Campbell, a finance professor at Duke University who developed the yield curve recession indicator, said the consumer price index doesn't accurately reflect price changes and that the Fed should not rely on it to make policy decisions. Doing so could derail the U.S. economy, he said. It is simple to me. Inflation is already within the 2% preferred range, Harvey told MarketWatch in a phone interview. The policy of wait, 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 then drip, 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 greatly increases the chance we fumble the soft landing that everyone wants. The Fed should cut sooner rather than later. And, of course, I'm sure if Dad's listening to this right now, he's nodding his head up and down in agreement with uh, Professor Harvey. Now, on Tuesday, the Fed 
the federal government released the Consumer Price Index report for January, which showed that shelter inflation, which refers to the cost of rental units, homes, and hotels, rose six-tenths of a percent on a monthly basis and was up 6% over the last 12 months. The Fed measures of inflation are heavily weighted towards shelter costs, which include not just homes, homes, uh, home, not just based on home prices, based on sales, but also the amount of rent that owner-occupied homes could fetch if it had tenants. Shelter represents 40%, ladies and gentlemen, 40% of the CPI reading. But the private sector data about housing costs tells a different story than the CPI data does. For instance, Realtor.com's measurement of asking rents found that rent prices have dropped for eight months in a row. And so as you go further into this article, what it really comes down to is that the Federal Reserve is using old data for computing 40% of the consumer price index. And so that is the kind of taking the task that this professor has, that the Federal Reserve needs to be using more up-to-date housing data in order to compute CPI. And if they did, then they've already met their target mandate of that 2% target inflation and that they need to start cutting rates now before we go any further into this new year, because his big concern is with this high level of interest rates, with it costing more to buy a home and finance it through a mortgage or to buy a car and finance those car payments, the economy is just going to continue to slow down further and further and further. And then it could push us into recession. And then the Fed, being as reactive as they've always been, will then finally come in and start cutting rates as opposed to being proactive. So that's really the gist of this article. Fed is crunched some new numbers with some more up-to-date data, particularly for a particularly for a component that accounts for 40% of the consumer price index. So you said something, Kyle, I don't think you meant to say this. I didn't, and, and I don't want our listeners to construe that, but the Fed does not compute the consumer price index. It does no. its own computations to determine what it believes uh, in the, infl- the current inflation rate is, and it has some preferred statistics it likes to use, but the consumer price index is actually – Computed the by the Bureau Bureau of Labor Statistics. Statistics, now, correct. I don't know, nor do I know that the Fed has ever said, nor do I know of any source that it discloses to the public how they arrive at whatever data it is that they're looking at. And I don't know how this professor would know what what data the the Federal Reserve is actually looking at, where they're getting their data. I don't know where he knows this. Has this this professor ever been a a Federal Reserve governor or been on the Federal Reserve Board? I don't think so. I'm not not saying that that the professor's not right. It's just how many articles do you see like this um, at a time when 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 the market starts calling for interest rate cuts because the market wants what it wants when it wants it? And it starts to find ways of getting a narrative out there that the Fed's you know, wrong, the Fed's behind the curve. 
when has the Fed not been behind the curve in in the 32 years that I've been managing money? Maybe once that I can think of off the top of my head, and that's COVID. I think they were behind the curve in 08, cutting rates, because I got the statistics showing when they were cutting rates over and over and over again from the summer into the fall. Some would say that they were very slow to raise rates long after the 2008-09 period ended. I mean, we went from, what was it, uh, 2008, between 08 and 2015, the Fed didn't cut rates or raise rates at all. Seven years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you know, I, I mean, it, again, if they the, were the getting whole... paid based on the number of times they changed interest rates, so they, they, I guess they didn't make any money in those seven years. But you know, we all know that there's that that, that uh, Federal Reserve policy is certainly subject to a whole lot of Monday morning quarterbacking, all of us included. Um, I, this the you know, what. Whether they're using or this this theory that they're using data that's a year old or not a year old, I, I don't know that I really buy that because I don't know really what data they're using, and I don't know how the risk writer of the article knows one way or the other. Yes, Joe? Hey, bingo. Well, how many times have we been on the show and how many times have we been told that the Fed uses a PCE as a, as a barometer for inflation, and now it's all well, about it's Yeah, CPI. it's a personal consumption and Expenditures now at CPI. So, which is it? And that's that's yeah, my and, whole and point. Didn't even bring that up in the article. I didn't read the article, but it even no. mentioned PCE. No, okay. but, but when but when you have the real estate industry being puzzled, where you know, by the C, by the CPI data, I mean, in fact, the the chief economist of the National Association of Realtors is saying shelter inflation is not up 6%. This is their chief economist for the National Association of Realtors said housing well, inflation I, is not up 6%. Where are they getting this data? It is completely stale. I, well, We've actually was, seen rents and single-family home. It's been coming down. Okay. It's not been going up. I would so pose that's this what question. puzzles them. I would pose this question. If jobs aren't falling out of bed, job statistics aren't falling out of bed, if income growth is not falling out of bed, if there's massive declines in the price of homes, if there's rampant bank failures happening, none of that's happening, right? No. None of that's happening. And so the Fed, is it not, and I think I've said this before, and I've said this to client, is, clients, isn't it kind of amazing in some ways to think that, we had 11 interest rate increases, and the markets are trading in near all-time highs across the board. And then Nasdaq's well, only like two percent away. I mean, isn't that? But, I mean, because didn't no, it, didn't, it amazing, didn't, didn't the, the chairman actually say himself that uh, he thought it was remarkable the way that the economy has reacted to the amount of tightening that has been put into the system. But could that also show that we had rates artificially low for way too long? Also? Yes. Yes, and also a reflection of how much cash was put into people's pockets uh, you know, post-COVID, and that that cash mm-hmm. is running off. Um, the Fed is going to. The Fed is not a uh, anticipatory entity. It's a reactionary entity, and so. W- 
whenever they ultimately decide to do what it is they're going to do, which is most likely cut interest rates, it will be perceived as too late. And, and to wrap up this segment, this was Professor Harvey's biggest concern, is that the central bank could potentially lead the U.S. into a recession due to their, uh, you know, their reactive interest rate cutting policy. Well, let's take another commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Money Wise, guys, be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Tuesday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the MoneyWise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So we're going to put CPI, PPI to bed, that article uh, from MarketWatch, which, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely an eyebrow raiser, um, but like we said, Ladies and gentlemen, the Federal Reserve is always going to be reactive, not proactive. Um, so, shifting gears, do we want to talk about some of the adjustments, slight little adjustments that we made in the stock portfolio this past week? Yeah, I mean, I guess one thing we could say is, giving every, given everything we just said in the last segment about whether the Fed is using uh, – computations that are accurate to make the best decisions they could possibly make. What does all that mean for, you know, portfolios in terms of asset allocations? And you know, this year uh, we had raised our asset allocations to stocks, you know, heading into the year. I think we raised them a little bit more in January and we were fairly close to, uh, Maximum asset allocations to stocks, which is which in a moderate asset allocation portfolio is approximately sixty percent of the portfolio in stocks. None of which is in emerging markets or international stocks, ladies and gentlemen. Zero, zero, not a. We're going to talk more about that later in the show. I'm fired up about that. That Joe is fired up. You want some excitement? Well, I'll give you some excitement. Okay. Okay. So. Here in the past week, we did we did reduce a cu- two names in the portfolio because they their asset allocation had was uh, was it twenty percent above our uh, well target it was, fifteen and you know, somewhere in there it was it was well above our target. Uh, it, was it was just it was just trimming as I say yeah. we're scraping some of the extra foam off the top of the latte. We still own the positions. But they had run so far above our allocation target in the portfolio and also where we're going to be taking a lot of the allocation targets for the other individual stocks, for the individual stock portfolios. We just reduced it to that next step up um, and, you know, was able to to book a, a handsome, tidy little profit across the board for all of our clients that own those stocks. Uh, as we long, long time saying in the Davidson Capital uh, management offices is you never go broke taking a profit. And so we trimmed uh, NVIDIA 
and we trimmed United Rentals, uh, both positions that we've owned for a very, very long time. United Rentals has just been an absolute juggernaut. Not a very sexy company by any stretch of the imagination, renting out heavy equipment across the country, <laughs> but it has fantastic rock-solid fundamentals, does all the right things, acquires, spends money wisely, and as infrastructure projects continue yep. to expand, as the housing construction continues to expand, they're really one of the big go-tos for heavy equipment rentals. And as far as NVIDIA, I think for most of our listeners, people know who they are. In fact, this past week, they are able to achieve, what, the third highest market cap company uh, pretty much in the world, surpassing Google. I believe this past week, or was it Amazon? Oh, it was Amazon. It was Amazon. Was it Amazon? Okay, yeah, they Amazon. surpassed Amazon as the third largest market cap company in in the world. Yeah, Joe. And their well, earnings what? their earnings come out next week too. Next so week. it it wasn't. Uh, it, I think the timing was was uh, advantageous. Are, are we worried about Nvidia's earnings next week? No. No. Uh, it, it, if there was, by some stretch of the imagination, something negative in their report, would the market react negatively to that? Yes. But I think mm-hmm. on the on the flip side, I don't know that the market would necessarily react overly positive if you know, any more positive, because it's just had such a tremendous run. I, I expect their earnings to come in at, you know, at or above expectations, not hugely above. The market will be fine with it. Uh, I think there was some some – <laughs> some brokerage house. I think it's. I think if if you want to get your name briefly in, in the news, be an obscure brokerage house that comes out and and it reiterates a buy rating on Nvidia and put put some what seems like a pretty crazy price target. I think somebody came out two thousand dollar price tag. I thought it was eleven hundred and twenty five dollar price target on Nvidia which is like $500 more share than what it's trading at right now. I don't know what time frame this brokerage house was saying. Okay, $400 higher. I don't know what – I don't recall the name of the brokerage house, but it just kind of, oh, they're just now wanting to, you know, get bullish on it. Jeez. Well, yeah. the one thing I the one thing I will say about NVIDIA, and, of course, the astronomical run that has had – uh, really going back to September of 2022, and then it had a short time period in 23 where it ran sideways. But when you look at its forward price earning multiple of 38, um, in its five-year PE range of 23 to 155, a 38 forward PE is not a crazy valuation for – a stock like NVIDIA and the AI and everything that they do in the chip space. Um, that's not a crazy multiple. I, I wanted to point something out, and I, we're talking about portfolios and obviously having a target and making sure are you overweight or underweight a particular stock. If you're a home gamer, you need to make sure of one thing. You have a strategy. You stick to it. If your positions that you have are have a heck of a run, you need to take take some profits. But we're talking about NVIDIA. That's a sexy stock. There's a lot of stocks that we have in a portfolio that, that are that are a few that might be AI related. But I wanted to talk about something Kyle just mentioned, an infrastructure play. I remember in October of last year, there, we're looking at different stocks to buy. I think we, we bought four or five different stocks in the portfolio. And it, when you're talking about portfolio management and tactically managing portfolios, you need to take advantage of certain sectors that you think are going to do well. 
And you don't have to be a rocket scientist or you have to you don't have to have a construction company to know if you talk to people in Texas about what's going on with some of the highway work, some of the infrastructure work. And there's a pretty good bet that's going across, going on across the country. So that's something just I wanted to point out that when we construct our portfolio, it's not just high flying tech stocks. We have some old what does your dad used to call them stodgy. Dividend-paying stocks. We have mid-cap stocks. I know I did a review last year. I think we had close to nine mid-cap stocks. And how much research are you doing on your end if you're a home gamer? Or how much research is your advisor doing to make sure, oh, I just don't have name-brand large-cap growth stocks. I have mid-cap. I have small-cap. I'm avoiding international. I'm avoiding emerging markets. And when's the last time they made a fund change? Period. Ask yourself that. It's not even between large, mid, and small. It's also, you know, what core positions do you have? Do you have value? Um, you know, although typically value names don't perform as well in a higher interest rate environment because they're dividend yields, which typically a lot of large cap value stocks pay, uh, their dividend yields aren't as attractive as what you can get right now in a position-traded money market account or even in corporate bonds or even in high yield, although we do not invest in any high yield and we do not recommend anyone invest in high yield bonds. There's enough risk in stocks. You don't need to use bonds to add risk to your portfolio. Um, but, you know, again, it all comes down to, you know, it all comes down to homework. Um, you know, I know that we received an email from a listener of our show you know, wanting to know why we don't talk more about kind of all the individual stocks that we own. And, you know, really what it comes down to is we do talk about certain positions if we trim like we did with United Rentals and NVIDIA. So obviously that's two names that we own. Or if we talk about some individual stocks, we'll talk about and disclose whether or not we own them or don't own them. But at the end of the day, with as much research and analysis and work that goes into each and every single stock that goes into our, part, our portfolio, and you layer that on to our proprietary uh, investment management philosophy, unfortunately, that's not information that we're just going to readily give up over the air. Um, I could come out here and say, yeah, here's the 40 stocks we own and why we own them. I don't th- the listeners need to understand the amount of man hours that have been put into these names, not only on just the initial selection of these stocks, but the continued vetting of these stocks of why we're going to be continuing to own them and the decisions that we make, whether we're going to trim or whether we're going to get rid of a stock, you know, all out. Um, That's a lot of work, you know, and it's, it's kind of like um, you, you wouldn't have someone build you a house and then say, okay, well, now I'm, I'm not going to pay you for building that house, but, but thank you um, because you're a builder, and that's what you're supposed to do is build me a house and walk away from it. So, you know, I understand that, you know, we want to talk more about in general terms of the market, our analysis of the market, what just happened in this past week, what our forward guidance is, what our thoughts are, how certain market events, how, kind of the cause and effect from an economic standpoint, political, geopolitical standpoint, and how it can affect the market, and just sound investment guidance that we provide to our listeners that are either managing it themselves or overseeing somebody else, a professional that is overseeing their portfolio, and really trying to distinguish and differentiate ourselves from everybody else out there on the street that are in financial sales, because that's not what we're in, that's not what we do at Davidson Capital Management. We're portfolio managers. Full discretionary control. We are bought to make those decisions for our clients in their portfolio 
when those decisions need to be made, utilizing our investment management philosophy that we've been using successfully for the last 35 years. So that's kind of the gist in a nutshell of why we don't just give up uh, each one of our individual names uh, in our portfolio, whether it be an exchange-traded fund or individual stock. But we appreciate all of our listeners and always have for the last 19 years and for the years to come. So with that, let's take a commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Tuesday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Money Wise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So in our last segment of the first hour of this weekend's Money Wise program, Joe or Jeff, I know that uh, Joe or Jeff, one of the Jays, you guys take over because I know you wanted to talk about just the composition of our moderate asset builder portfolio. And our asset builder program at Davidson Capital Management, it's a portfolio of individual bonds and exchange-traded mutual funds, exchange-traded funds. Uh, which are basically like mutual funds, just with a lot less fees. Yes. Well, actually, before we get to the the asset builder accounts, I really wanted to focus more on the accounts that own the individual stocks, which was mm. along the lines of the email that we received from uh, the caller that we the, the uh, listener that we talked about in the last segment. So, moderate asset allocation uh, stock portfolio, individual stock portfolio right now, as well, actually, as of the end of in close of business on Thursday, was just shy of 59% invested in stocks. We've had quite a bit of appreciation in our portfolio this year. And so even though we only raised our overall allocation of stocks a few percent at the beginning of the year because of appreciation, it's pushed, it's pushed it up to almost 60%. Um, Allocation to stocks, which is really our maximum uh, allocation in a uh, moderate asset allocation portfolio. Generally, it's about three quarters growth stocks, and the other quarter is it's going to be value stocks. Uh, predominantly larger caps. Um, there's some small and mid cap stocks in the portfolio, but the portfolio is predominantly large cap stocks. On the fixed income side, you know it's it's a mix. Uh, we've we've got about uh, twenty, little over twenty percent of our bond portfolio in treasury bonds, uh, bonds that we had purchased. Uh, many of them in late 2022 into 2023. Um, we actually have not purchased any uh, government bonds in 2024, if my memory serves me correctly, as of yet. Um, we have we have uh, been building a position in a in a intermediate term corporate bond exchange traded fund, and we still own a few individual corporate bonds also um, in our uh, larger portfolios. Uh, our 
position traded money market fund, which is a high yield money market fund, that position has been trimmed quite substantially um, here this year in in uh, favor of a intermediate bond, intermediate term corporate bond exchange traded fund. So. When you round it all off at the end of the day, we're approximately 60% stock, 40% bond in a moderate asset allocation portfolio. What we strive to do in the asset builder accounts, which is our our, our, uh, investment accounts that uh, typically have less than a million dollars in investable assets, we try to match those uh, asset allocations as closely as possible to what we're doing in the uh, larger accounts, though we don't own individual stocks in the asset builder accounts, we we own exchange traded funds. I think you've heard a lot heard us talk a lot about the fact that we no longer own any mutual funds in any of our portfolios. Uh, we we own exchange traded funds and or individual stocks depending on the type of uh, portfolio, and that's you know a lot of that has to do with we were trying to reduce the fee structure in the portfolios because the easiest way to increase your returns in any portfolio is to reduce your fees and uh, the fees there's there can be quite a bit of fees in mutual fund I, I'm not I'm not throwing mutual funds totally under the bus but I just want you know, to understand, you know, we're going to talk about a portfolio here in just a moment that Joe was looking at this week where, once again, fees are killing uh, the performance of that portfolio. Of that portfolio, So that's kind of gives everybody in a nutshell exactly where we're at in terms of broader asset allocations to the portfolio. Now, Joe, I know you want to talk about this before we get to the end of this uh, first hour of this week's Money Wash program, a portfolio that came across your desk this week. So go ahead. Sure. And when you're talking, this is more the know what you own segment of the show, if you will. But I was doing a portfolio review uh, from an individual in Corpus, and the, the individual was referred in. And after looking at the portfolio and using Morningstar, you know, the, the overall advisor fees were well, were above 1.5%, right about 1.6. Then I looked at the fund expenses. The net fund expenses were 0.77%. So all in on those two expenses alone, you're looking at about 2. Well, roughly about 2.3%. I've seen annuities with some riders that are over 2%, meaning... It wasn't a really, really large account, but obviously what kind of impact does that have on your return out of fees if you're giving up 2.3% roughly in an aggressive model in a growth portfolio? And two things that Jeff pointed out, too, is over 20% of it was emerging markets and international, and that's why it was underperforming. You combine that with high fees, that's why you need to know what you own and just setting it and do a 20% allocation in international or large cap, you need to be immediately watching your portfolio. Kyle. Well, I was going to say, this is the kind of asset allocation that you're going to typically find when you work with the legacy distribution systems because they use computer models, they use Monte Carlo analysis, they use modern portfolio theory after you fill out your questionnaire to determine what your risk tolerance is and what your goals are for your investment portfolio, and then they stick it into this computer model. It spits out the allocation based on historic returns, and that's what they consider asset management. Not that emerging markets are negative year to date. But, well, you know, given what you just said, yeah. 
Given what you just said, putting this information in a computer model, why have their computer models not picked up the decade after decade after decade underperformance of those asset classes? Why aren't those models picking that up? You know, that that's what I don't understand. They're going to fall back on the excuse of true diversification. There'd be yeah. some international managers without a job because they wouldn't have enough assets in there to manage. That's one of the things. So what, what a real money I said that tongue in cheek, but anyway. Yeah. What a real money manager does is they analyze current market market and economic conditions, forward guidance, and what asset classes through their experience of being in the trenches managing real money in real time, what asset classes typically perform better during certain economic and market conditions with combined with their forward guidance and their proprietary investment management philosophy. That's what true money managers do. They don't stick in a computer model to get some antiquated run-of-the-mill portfolio that you're then getting charged 1.5% to 2% from that legacy distribution system for that portfolio and then backfill it with proprietary relationship investment products that they get a share of that revenue through revenue-sharing agreements. With that, we're coming up to the top of our break, so we'll take the break, go into the news, and we come back, we'll dive into the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program and continue with more investor education. Stay tuned. We'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. The Money Wise guys will be back after the news. All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We've got my father, John, my brother, Jeff, and I'm your host, Kyle Davidson. We are diving into the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program. Now, if you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday, you can reach us in our local Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll free at one 800 275 2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So for the second hour of this weekend's MoneyWise program, um, as we normally use the second hour to go into investor education, you know, there was a, a topic and a subject matter that uh, that I've wanted to to talk about for some time. And I've been thinking about it all week, and it, and it really talks about uh, investors' behavior and improving investors behavior and so doing some research and really where this spur you know really where i got the spark to want to look into this and research it is several weeks ago uh dalbar released a study and they release a study on an annual basis talking about investor behavior and their typical rates of return um and and what their experience has been as managing money of their on their own and and from time to time when i meet with prospective clients and current clients we talk about investor psychology and how investor psychology can do a lot of damage to portfolios so in my research i actually 
ran across a presentation that was put together by the Mutual Fund family Munder. I want to give them the credit for, for putting this presentation together, which I thought was just fantastic presentation that I wanted to pass along to our listeners because it's got a lot of good food for thought, but it also includes some of these Dalbar statistics about investor psychology and the rates of return that individual investors have been achieving over a very long period of time, in fact, a 20-year time period, and how critical it is to have the connection with an investment professional to assist them, but also how to not allow humans, the, your human psyche become a roadblock to investing for your future. So looking at this presentation... You know, historic historic investment behavior really threatens the ability to accomplish objectives and achieve achieve returns. The result is, is that investors are not going to reach their goals, whether it be retirement, saving for higher education, what have you. Investment returns may be far more dependent on investment behavior than market performance. And so investors who hold their investments typically are going to earn a higher return over time than those who attempt to time the market. And there's an old saying that that I use is it's about time in the market and not timing. So looking at emotional decisions, you know, these emotional decisions are often based on biases and not objective analysis. So potential investor problems that folks run into is identifying, first they're looking and trying to identify trends that don't exist in the marketplace. Uh, They also overweight information in the press. That brings up the example that we've talked about for many years of the client that came in to our office in 2008 and wanted us to liquidate his accounts because Glenn Beck told him that he needed to liquidate all of his investments. That's That's a particularly egregious example of someone overweighing information from someone in the press that has absolutely no investment experience whatsoever. And as a matter of fact, has a bias towards promoting a investment philosophy that enriches their advertisers, which in turn enriches the person that is delivering the message i.e. all the gold ads that you hear on shows like Glenn Beck or uh, the, the, the conser- really the conservative side of the aisle. I'm trying to think of some of those other guys. Glenn Beck, uh, Sean Hannity. Sean Hannity. You, know, you listen to these shows, every one of them's got a gold ad on. I think Limbaugh, as at one time, may still, I haven't listened to Limbaugh in so long, run, runs gold ads. Mm-hmm. And and you know and again we talk about on the show all the time about overweighting the information from the press because again this twenty four hour news cycle we feel is doing a lot more damage to the investor psyche than if they just turned it off and tune it out a little bit more or if they do continue to listen to it to take things with a little bit of a grain of salt and realize that the information is going to be coming to them with a certain bent to it depending upon who's the person that's providing the information. So, you know, something else talking about emotional decisions and, and, and decisions based on bias and not objective analysis. You know, a lot of investors, I mean, investors giving greater weight to the equivalent amount of gains and losses. And really it comes down to, and, and I ask this question all the time of prospective clients or even current clients, is remembering losses more 
than gains. And that's one thing that, that in particular really holds investors back is, is always having, I mean, losses from 2000, losses from 2008, still being so fresh in the front of their mind, um, that's holding them back from making decisions to get involved with the stock market. You know, something else from an emotional decision standpoint is overestimating their own ability to manage their wealth. And I know with a lot of the self-help books out there, with a lot of the blogs and a lot of the websites, I think there's a false sense of security that can be built into an investor's mindset saying, you know what, I can do this on my own and I can do better doing this part-time on my own. And I can tell you, you know, with 70-plus years of combined experience sitting in the studio, we can tell you that you cannot manage money part-time and be successful over the long term. It's just cannot happen. It will not happen because things move so much quicker in this day and age. And then finally, you know, this all can lead to repeatedly making the same mistakes when you have these biases and you don't take an objective analysis when it comes to investing. So let's talk about the identifying of trends or patterns where none exist. You know, one thing that in individual investors do all the time is chasing the hot dots or basically chasing the hot stock or chasing the hot investment du jour for the many years. Hot asset class. Hot asset class. For many years, it's been what? Precious metals. It's been all about gold. The late 90s was the internet silver. stocks. Uh, and then, but gold here, especially this century, uh, or really precious metals in general, had been one of the hottest areas. And then, you know, here uh, lately, in the last uh, three, four years, it's been social media. Uh, we've got the Amazons of the world, the Teslas of the world, mm -hmm. uh, th that have been certainly being chased uh, by, by investors and bidding them up quite a bit. They've had they've had a, a pretty uh, good correction here in the last few months, which I think has contributed to the, the, this market uh, kind of so not experiencing the kind of gains that we thought that that should have here in the first four months of the year. And and before we go to the commercial break, another issue that investors run into is the gambler's fallacy, believing that one can predict when trends will reverse themselves and feeling that they're a, a good timer of knowing when to pull the trigger. So we're going to pause right there, take another commercial break. When we come back, we'll be continuing improving investment behavior, and we'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We'll be back after these words. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday, you can reach us in our local Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you have an investment-related question or topic you'd like for us to discuss here on the MoneyWise program, you can send all your emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So talking about improving investor behavior, going through a presentation, talking about investor psychology, before we went to commercial break, we were talking about a lot of issues that investors run into, in particular those that are, that are managing their own assets. And one, one big issue that investors run into is chasing the hot dots or basically chasing the stock du jour or the sector du jour. Uh, we also talked about the gambler's fallacy, believing that one can predict trends are going to – being able to identify and predict when trends are going to reverse themselves. 
another issue that that individual investors run into is focusing on investments doing well, but ignoring those investments that are not doing well in their portfolio. And I've run into this quite often when I do portfolio reviews and analysis, when I, I talk to prospective clients that are very happy about being in a position that pays a 10, 12, 13% dividend yield, and they're completely honed and focused in on the fact that they're giving a 12 to 13% dividend yield, and they're not realizing that they've lost 50% or 75% of their original investment, of their principal, because the value of the stock has just plummeted, but they were dazzled by just the yield. So let's talk about uh, Dalbar. Now, Dalbar is a company that was gathering a lot of investor data. Uh, They've been doing this for years and years and years. They just came out with a report that has information through 2013. And so what Dalbar found in their survey is that clients are motivated by two main emotions, and we've talked about them on this show for years and years and years. The two emotions are fear and greed. They're not motivated by sound investment practice. Investment returns are typically increase when there is a disciplined behavior. And, I mean, that's one thing that we've preached on the MoneyWise program going back to 2005. It's about having a very strict philosophy, as we do here at Davidson Capital Management, as a balanced manager. A, a disciplined behavior has many different that's aspects. Right. You know, one of those, and I think one of the most important parts of being disciplined, is especially in a retirement account, is participating in your 401K, Contributing as as much as you can, if you can contribute the maximum amount to your 401k, that obviously that's going to give you the the highest probability of reaching your investment goals in retirement. Contributing that money every single month and investing on a consistent basis, time and time again, and I've got dozens of examples of clients that are in identical investments over long periods of time and the ones that are contributing to their accounts on a monthly, bi-weekly basis are outperforming those clients that don't contribute anything at all with identical investments, identical allocations because it gives us, the the investment manager, the ability to, to buy, could always be in the market, Buying securities, maybe you know, like right now, we've had opportunities to buy some of these funds at lower prices because the markets have been down. Mm-hmm. And by dollar cost averaging all the time, and having the discipline to contrib- contributing to your retirement, and even if you're not contributing, if you if you've maxed out your 401k and you still have money that's left over to to put into some sort of retirement account. Get a, get a tax, get a, just a, a regular brokerage account, start contributing consistently to that one, too, and investing consistently in, in, that, in that type of account. Over the long period, it is going to pay tremendous dividends. That's right. So, as you said, Jeff, disciplined behavior could mean investment philosophy and strategy. It could mean paying yourself first and participating and saving for your nest egg. Now, the Dalbar study also... Uh, went and calculated the guest right ratio. And what the guest right ratio is is the percentage of time the average equity investor correctly guessed 
the direction of the market. Over a 20-year period ending December 31st of 2012 was 63%. So a little bit more than half. Now, granted, how do they gather this data? I have no idea how I'm they not sure. This. I mean, again, they have some type of matrix and process they go through to gather this data. The bottom line is investors are driven to do the wrong thing by the psychological factors that overtake their rational decision-making. And that's what they that's again what what Dalbar is finding in their studies. And so as we get further into this Dalbar study, we look at uh, investors are driven to do the wrong thing by psychological factors that overtake rational decision making. And so they've actually listed a number of psychological factors that every investor has when they're going through their decision making process. And so this kind of going through, all of these that are presented by Dalbar. The first one is we have loss aversion. And this is when an investor is expecting to find high returns with low risk. And I think that's any utopian dream of any investor is being able to get a high rate of return with little to no well, risk. Well, isn't this in kind of a, a selling or a attempted selling point for equity index annuities? Oh, brother, did you hear that one right on the head? You're absolutely right. I mean... They use this psych. I mean, again, marketing firms are looking at psychological factors that drive investors' decision making, and they're putting it into their presentations. And like you said, this loss aversion, all the upside, none of the downside. Every, throwing the guaranteed word right. out there is what it's. We're psychologically wired to be attracted to those kinds of pitches. And so this loss aversion causes the investor to search for investments that either don't exist and results in either taking no action or later discovering that the selected investment fails to meet their expectations, a la equity indexed annuities. And, and let's give an example. Recently, you, we, we'd, we've seen all sorts of equity indexed annuities over the years. Yes. And I can tell you that our typical experience for an investor that has held an equity indexed annuity, say over at least a five year time period, that they typically return about a third of what you would have received had you just put the money into an S and P five hundred index fund. Oh, if you're just talking straight S and P, it's even it's even less than a third, Jeff. Yeah. It's less than a third. I did a comparison on a most recent prospective client of our moderate allocation, our middle of the road more conservative allocation model that we use with more retirees or pending retirees at Davidson Capital Management, and their returns were a third or worse compared to our returns in a balanced allocation. So if you're talking 100% stock... So, so what we mean by a third or worse is, like, for five years, the the moderate allocation might have returned 65% total return mm -hmm. over a five-year period. Net of fees and expenses. Net of all fees, all expenses. And an, an equity index annuity might have returned uh, 20%. Or less. Yeah. Total return. Total return. And the, re and the difference between the two is... Well, that 40% is going to the insurance company. So, you know, talking about these psychological factors, again, we talked about loss aversion. Another one is narrow framing, and that's when you make decisions without considering all the implications. The result is a quick decision-making with the consequences that facts are uncovered after inappropriate investments are made. So you make a quick decision, and then you 
uncover some more facts after the fact that you made that decision, and you're like, uh-oh. This fits very well with that example I just used about that the client that came in and said, liquidate my portfolio because Glenn Beck said to. And then, what, one week later, two weeks later, Glenn Beck went on, on air and said, hey, I'm I, a schlub. I, I, I said this on my show here recently, but don't listen to me because I don't know anything about investments. So the, the inappropriate investment that was made was pulling the investments. That's that right. was the inappropriate investment, was taking everything out and putting it into cash. That's right. So here's another psychological factor that affects investors and their decision-making is anchoring. Now, anchoring is a very powerful communication method, but can mislead investors unless it is used with caution. So investors can be misled about the stability of an investment, if analogies are used to represent stability and analogies of growth can also lead to unrealistic beliefs and expectations again leads back to indexed annuities when I read this I just think of sales pitches that are more prevalent in the marketplace and even on different radio shows across the state and again using now this psychological effect of anchoring you know, presenting and misleading investors with the stability and the potential performance of this and, product. And, and we've been mentioning equity index annuities, for, for example, but there are other examples such as private placement, REITs. That's right. You know, they're sold based on their yield, but mm -hmm. we kind of gloss over the fact that how illiquid they are and how the, the value of the security could go down and how uh, those, those, those aspects of the investment are not discussed but the focus is all on the yield. That's right. And, and not, and not you know, can I get my money out if I need to liquidate? How fast can I get a hold of my money? And what is going to be the underlying value of my principal investment? Kind of going back to that. I'm getting a 10% yield, but I've lost 50% of my principal investment. Well, how is that beneficial to your portfolio? Well, we're coming to the bottom of the hour, so we're going to take the break. When we come back, we'll be continuing improving investor behavior and we'll do that after this you're listening to money wise with davidson capital management we'll be back after the break welcome back you're listening to money wise with davidson capital management if you'd like to learn more about the money wise guys you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on monday you can reach us in our local corpus christi office at 906 zero zero seven zero or toll free at one eight hundred two seven five Two one six two, and if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So, continuing our presentation in the second hour of improving investor behavior, and and again going into uh, psychological factors that Dalbar, who is a a financial industry information gathering company that does a lot of surveys. You know, I wanted to do something talking about the psychological factors and psychological effects that individual investors have uh, or, or how the psychological mindsets can, can hurt investors' portfolios over the long term. And so we were going through the different psychological factors that have this effect. We've talked about loss aversion and narrow framing and anchoring. But we talk about next is mental mental accounting, and that's when you take undue risk in one area and avoid rational risk in others. And I would say the best example, Jeff, in this area would be in precious metals. 
That would be that would be one area. I could I would also say that in the, to us in this market environment, taking risk in long maturity fixed income securities. That's right. And avoiding the the quote unquote risk that is inherent in, in investing in stocks to us, and this may seem odd to some people listening to the show, is we believe there's more risk in owning long-maturity fixed-income securities, whether they be municipal, government, corporate, than there is in owning the equivalent stocks of the same companies. We see more risk in owning a 30-year Exxon bond than we do maybe owning Exxon stock or AT&T or Verizon or hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other companies. So, So even though you're talking about Gold in particular, because we've seen a lot of uh, many clients that have, that have had large positions in gold. But I could also say the same thing for cash. You know, just plain yeah. old straight cash. They're, the risk that they're take, uh, investors are taking by having large amounts of cash in their portfolios is they're not getting any growth whatsoever. So, so mental accounting can be as damaging to returns as any other psychological factor, since investors can be misled into inappropriate investments. Uh, another psychological factor that can affect your portfolio. Now, this is interesting, diversification. Now, in diversification, you're obviously seeking to reduce risk, but simply using different sources. Now, it's extremely valuable investment strategy, but can also be misused to create a false sense of protection that results in potential return-killing action. And I think the best example of this, Dad, is you talk about Jim Cramer when people call up and say, am I diversified? Yes. And they have three or four stocks. Five. Yeah, five stocks saying, am I diversified? And Kramer's saying, well, you're in this industry, you're in that industry. Yeah, you're diversified. So you have your entire portfolio in five stocks. That is not, in our opinion, diversification. Something else where diversification saying, yeah, I'm diversified. What if you owned a bunch of different companies in the same industry? And I hate to quit picking on gold, but gold miners, for instance, I have reviewed a portfolio this year that had a ton of different gold miners and and different precious metal miners, and guess what? They feel that they're diversified, but they're concentrated in one industrial arena. And so that's, again, when we talk about diversification, we're talking stocks, bonds, large cap, mid cap, small cap, international bonds, domestic bonds, short maturity bonds, cash, cash. That's diversification. It's not five stocks of five different industrial companies and that's it. Or having 15 companies in one industrial sector, that's not diversification. So be very, very careful and understand what true diversification means. Uh, Another psychological factor, according to Dalbar, and this is a classic, hurting. Copying the behavior of others, even in the face of unfavorable outcomes. Investors that go along with the crowd, simply because there is a crowd, tend to avoid catastrophic errors, but seldom achieve above-average results. High returns are not achieved by herding. And, I mean, again, that herd mentality, I mean, it has been reported in so many different publications how... You know, again, long-term success. I mean, even thinking more of a, you know, being more of a contrarian as opposed to following the herd. Another psychological factor is regret. 
you know, treating errors of commission, which basically means decisions that you have made, you're treating them more seriously than errors of omission or a decision that you should have made. That basically means being extremely hard on yourself for deciding to buy this stock or this mutual fund as opposed to something else. And investors who defear, who fear decision-making lose their upside potential through inaction or reversal. Inaction can prevent losses caused by poor decisions but is unlikely to produce higher potential returns. So again, inaction. You don't want to have inaction. Another psychological effect, media response. Before you go into that, yeah. I think the inaction kind of ties in with, with folks overestimating their own ability to manage their, their wealth. That's right. Because they get too busy. Mm-hmm. And when you get too busy you, you, you and you run out of time or you're too tired, you've got other responsibilities then you can't you cannot take the you can't set aside enough time to really look at your portfolio understand what's going on and take action when action needs to be taken that's right and so here's another one that again goes along with the media media response it's a tendency it's another psychological effect it's a tendency to react to news without reasonable examination Going back to that Glenn Beck example, familiar media sources have become less reliable as they compete with newer, faster, and low-cost outlets. At the same time, new media outlets seldom have very thorough authentication. The question of reliability rises, raise, excuse me, raises the concern about reacting to news. So, again, that media response, and we've talked about that ad nauseum on this program. And then, finally, psychological factor that holds back and affects investors' portfolios over the long term is optimism. Now, Dad, I know we've used on this program, what's the bad four-letter word? Hope. Hope. The belief that good things happen to me and bad things happen to others. Optimistic investors hold on to investments after it becomes evident that losses are not likely to be recovered. Holding on to poor investments is yet another way psychological factors can reduce potential returns. Hope is a bad four-letter word. So with all this said, let's talk about the performance of the average equity investor. And this is a 20-year statistic, and this is through 12-31-2013. According to Dalbar, the average equity investor's return for 20 years annualized is 5.02%. Now, here's the tough pill to swallow. The S&P 500 index, same time period, up 9.22%, almost double what the individual average equity investor has realized in their portfolio for a 20-year time period because of the psychological factors that we just went over. I mean, I think that speaks volumes. I'd be curious, I know you didn't do this, I'd be curious to know what a, a moderate allocation portfolio had done during that time period. I know it it's going to be close to that. To I mean, when we're talking about the S&P 500, we're talking about a 100% stock portfolio, which is not something that we would recommend to any of our listeners to put 100% of their investments in stock. The optimum rate of return for us lies somewhere between these two numbers. But because you know, 5% is very low. 
you know, most people plugged into their their investment projections for the future when they were when they're trying to figure out how much money they needed for retirement and and they and they used a particular rate of return in their investment portfolio. Uh, I don't think anybody was using five percent. Well, a twenty-year bond twenty years ago would have yielded more than five percent. Mm-hmm. Which means if you just bought a 20-year bond 20 years ago and held it for the 20 years, you would have done better than the average investor from the study. I, I think the average, in stock. Yeah, the average investor, by and large, I, I would say, sold sells out at the bottom and is slow to get back in again. Well, you know, I, I think, again, Jeff, when you when you allow your emotions to dictate your buys and sells, I mean, I think emotion... And along with these psychological factors that we went into, but emotion, your emotion, your emotional attachment to your assets and your nest egg, again, I, I think is what's causing so many investors to make these bad decisions. And one huge advantage of having a professional money management team like a Davidson Capital Management, an RIA that has discretionary control, is they help separate that emotion from your nest egg because you're relying on their expertise and their experience of being in the trenches of managing assets to make those decisions for you. You're you're separating your site those psychological factors from your assets because they're out of your control. And by taking those assets out of your control, that's eliminating is it's eliminating a lot more emotion. And it becomes a lot more difficult for you to try to pull the wrong trigger on making a decision in your portfolio, you know. And you know, again, an old saying that investors would have. I mean, here's something an investor would say to themselves: you know, a stock's historic high was fifty dollars, but then it declines rapidly. The next thought in an investor's mind is, well, once my stock gets back to fifty, I'll sell, and that is hope. Hope. Okay, well, we're going to take our last commercial break, so we're going to take the break, come back. We'll be wrapping up this improving investor behavior. After we come back from break, you're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We'll be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday, you can reach us in our local Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So we've been talking this whole hour about improving investor behavior. And as Dad said, the commercial break, we've been talking about all the bad things investors have been doing. And I promise you, we're getting ready to get to how to improve investor behavior. But before we get there, I want to talk about, again, the most common and potentially most damaging behavior that investors can have in their portfolio. Number one is an over-concentration in a particular position and it can lead to unwarranted risk. So again, owning too much gold, owning too much in one particular industrial sector. Too much fixed income. Too much fixed income. Too much cash. That's right. It's important to understand that the market does not generally reward those who take risk that can be diversified away. So the reason why, again, we maintain a balanced philosophy at Davidson Capital Management, we've had for the past quarter century and for the next quarter century we will continue to have that balanced allocation remember that the market is not going to reward 
those non-diversified huge risks that you take in concentrating in your portfolio in one particular area. And also you have to remember, investors are not adequately rewarded for the additional risk that they're assuming. You know, failure to diversify a portfolio, you know, if a portfolio is not diversified enough, the potential losses may be greater during market downfalls and macroeconomic-driven events. So, again, this is why it's key to have diversification, have a balanced allocation, and, again, to have it actively managed. That's an absolute key. So how do we correct the behavior? You know, how do investors correct the behavior? Well, first and foremost is having an asset allocation, an initial asset allocation model and an ongoing asset allocation model, and an allocation model that is rebalanced. It's not set it and forget it because we have seen that more times than we can count doing portfolio Set it and forget it is is one of the, the most common asset allocation that is typically found with uh, a relationship that is more sales oriented than it is active management oriented, meaning the investor has a relationship with a full service broker. Uh, they they're not in the business of managing portfolios. They they typically set an initial allocation and when, the, when the money's deposited and they move on. When you buy an annuity, the initial asset allocation is set, and then that's it. You move on. So another way to correct investor behavior is setting and managing realistic expectations. If you're in a moderate allocation that's actively managed, you know, don't don't expect to be seeing a 15 to 20% annualized rate of return. That's just not realistic. I, I you know, today when we when I see prospective clients, the issue is not having the 15% plus, the, the double-digit type return expectations like we saw in the late 1990s. Mm-hmm. What it is is it's saying, oh, I want a 10% return, but I don't want, but I only want 20% of my money in stocks. That's what we're seeing now. There, there, there's a there's a aversion for risk, but the 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 return uh, expectations are reasonable by and large. But what isn't reasonable is the mix of assets to achieve that return. And that's where we have to say, now, you have to understand, if you want an 8%, 9% return, you're going to have to have 70% of your money in stocks given the current level of interest rates. And that's when the investors say, well, wait a second, I don't want to have 70% of my money in stocks. And so you have to bring down those expectations based on how much risk you're willing to take. So another way investors can help improve their returns and their behavior is maintaining true diversification. Not diversifying in multiple companies in one industrial sector. It's having mid-cap asset classes, large-cap asset classes, small-cap asset classes in a multitude of different industries. Foreign and domestic. Foreign and domestic, fixed income and equity, cash holdings, maintain that true diversification. Another great way to help improve returns, and Jeff, I know you said this earlier in the hour, dollar cost averaging into investments. If you have a 401k, if you have an IRA, if you have a taxable account, setting up monthly contributions, or if you're in a 401k, per pay period contributions. We know in 25 years of business, we've had clients that have been with us from the very beginning, and we can go back and look at the two different clients in the same allocation model, one client that's putting in money every month, another client that doesn't put another dollar in after their initial investment 
and the rates of return and the same allocation model is shocking. We've seen dollar cost averaging work with our own eyes, with our own client base. It's somewhere, it it's somewhere between 2 and 3% per year compounded, which doesn't sound like a lot, but get out of cal- that's a difference between a 7% compounded return and a 10% compounded return. And that adds up to serious money over the long period. Absolutely. Another way to help improve your returns, staying in the market. Now, again, it's time in, not timing. And if you have a proper allocation, you have an asset allocation model, you have true diversification in your dollar cost averaging, even when we have very choppy waters, you know, again, what we're trying to convey is the all-in, all-out strategy is not going to work because you're never going to be able to time it perfectly either way. So if you have an active, actively managed, balanced allocation over the long term, you will be rewarded. And finally, and I, I, God, this point is so good. I'm glad it's the last point. Investors need to stay focused on their goals that they have for their nest egg in their portfolio and not be focused on the markets and the day-to-day gyrations. And Stay th- focused on your long-term goals. I cannot say that any stronger or clearer. And that is so hard to do in an environment now where we are saturated in media. It via, is. Via it is. television and gazillion channels of TV the internet, whether it's on a computer sitting at our desk at work, a computer sitting on our desk at home, or our smartphones that are tied into CNN news feeds or whatever, or CNBC, CNBC news feeds, Market Watch. There's, you have to consume media uh, lightly. Well, go on a diet. <laughs> <laughs> the Atkins diet of. Uh, of uh, media consumption, too much of too much media can lead to being paralyzed making decisions. And we've learned from this Dalbar study of psychological effects on investing and what creates poor investment returns is the lack of being able to make a decision because you're being paralyzed by fear. So, Dad, I'm glad we kept you awake during this presentation, just barely, but it's something that I've been thinking about all week. I wanted to f- get some good, you know, meaty statistics and just information to pass along and the psychological effects and, and how they can affect both positively and negatively a portfolio. So we would like to thank everyone for listening to this weekend's Money Wise program. Again, if you'd like to give us a call on Monday, you can reach us in our local Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. For my father, John, my brother, Jeff, this is Kyle Davidson saying have a fantastic weekend to your financial health. We'll talk to you next week.